0: All right, I hope you guys are ready to hear a word from the Lord today. We're moving through the Gospel of Mark together this fall, taking some selected passages, considered probably the highlights of Mark, and uh, I've got to average about one per chapter, so that's uh, going to be some things that we just don't get to, to cover that I know you want. Um, so that's what Sunday nights are really good about, is we can hit those little extra things that we missed on Sunday morning. As I was looking at Mark chapter 3, and considering what text that I should bring to you this morning, I knew that this was one that I could not avoid because uh, you would probably rag me if I did. You wouldn't let me live it down. Uh, It's simply too controversial a text, too misunderstood of a text to skip past. And uh, I want to make sure that you're equipped when someone brings up the unpardonable sin, when someone brings up that phrase to you, that you're equipped to know what that means. Uh, That's going to be our text today in Mark 3. I think most pastors would agree with me when I say a couple times a year, someone comes up to you burdened, broken, actively in a state of fear over this passage. And they might say something like, Pastor, how do I know if I've committed the unpardonable sin? What is it? Uh, what What if I did commit it and I don't know it? Or One time, you know, it's kind of a confession mode. One time in this low moment, you know, I said, blankety, blank, blank, blank. And, you know, can I get that back? You know, what if I already, what it's out there already? Did Did I blaspheme God? Is it out there? Do you think that I can be forgiven? And maybe you've encountered somebody like this before. Pastor John MacArthur once said, A good sermon on the unpardonable sin should both frighten the comfortable and comfort the frightened. I hope that as this message is laid out, that's exactly what you see happening. What I don't want in you, Christian, is an irrational fear of something that you're not likely in danger of. Yes, it's true that the ones who accused Jesus of committing uh, the one who Jesus accused, uh, accused of committing the unpardonable sin; those were the religious. Yes. Those were the religious leaders. They were the Jews with the most knowledge. They were the scribes. They were the churchgoers who won the Bible trivia. They won the sword drill. Yes, it is true. That's who they were. Um, But we know, and maybe if you don't know, I'm going to shock you, uh, just because someone is immersed in church culture does not mean that they are necessarily born again. Is that right? Okay. Yeah, so just because you're here all the time and because you, you know, you, you can get down with K-love, does not necessarily mean you're a spirit-filled Christian. Uh, there's a bit more to it than that. I think, I think people fear this text because they worry that they've committed this, and uh, though they don't actually know all the time what it is. So uh, that feeling of, oh, no, what if I did, kind of lingers in people's minds. It stokes the concern. So I hope today to dispel some myths and some false concerns about the passage to comfort the frightened, yes. But I want to present the sober reality also. Of Jesus' words, Um, it's not often that the something in the Bible just stops you and makes you sit there and feel like someone put a forty-five pound, you know, weight on your chest, and you just have to feel that. I think that's good once in a while to feel that. Um, I don't want to brush aside the seriousness of it and say, "Ah, it's actually nothing. All these fears were for nothing." That's not true either. This does mean something. Um, So I hope that. As we talk about walking with Jesus, I mean, this is a good day to reevaluate our walk with Jesus. And so, one theme that I'm going to have running through the day is that of a callus. A callus. Okay, so uh, we have a couple guitar players in the room. How many of you in the room could play one full song through on the guitar? You can at least do that. Anybody? Go ahead. Put them up. All right. So, for all of you guitar people, is it a good thing? What happens? Let me say it this way. If you're right handed like me, what happens to the to your left hand when you start playing guitar. Anybody know? Say it again. You get these little calluses on your fingertips. If I could get the microphone up here, and I did. It's a different sound. You can't tell that from from back there, but there's a different sound because I've got calluses on the tips of my left fingers, these three specifically, from playing guitar a lot. Is that good? Do you want that? Yes, you want that. Why? It hurt, it, and it hurts, right? I mean, if press, go, go somewhere and for five minutes straight, put your finger on a metal, uh, a steel string and just press it. It hurts after a while, but it doesn't anymore for guitar players because you get these calluses. So some calluses are good. You know, if you go to a, a track sprinter and you said, now this is weird, all right, but if you said, let's see the bottoms of your feet, all right? I don't recommend that, but let's say you did that. Would you see pristine baby soft feet? on the 100-meter sprinters? No, they've got calluses as thick as a silver dollar down there because it's good. Some calluses are good. However, there there are calluses you don't want in life. A calloused heart is not good. A calloused heart, spiritually speaking, is not something that is an aspiration for a Christian. I believe that the calloused heart that refuses to acknowledge Christ's work, that refuses to live by faith, can be left open to the unpardonable sin. I want us to examine our hearts today. Check your callus on your your heart today as we look at this text. So before we look at Mark three, I'm gonna invite you to pray with me. Lord, thank you for just a, a quiet moment where we get to study your word. It's such a gift. I pray that you would use this for your glory, that you would use this in the, in the life of this church. And Lord, if, if someone here today needs to repent and turn to you, Lord, if, if you would use this passage in, in someone's life, Lord, we pray that would happen today. We would see someone surrender their all to you even today. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Mark three twenty two. If you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles, Mark 3.22. Um, so I'm going to give you some context because we are covering so much in the in-between between Sundays. Here's what sort of happened last week, you know, last, this week on Lost. All right, so last week we established the ministry of Jesus that included miracles. We talked about the paralyzed man last week being lowered through the roof. If you were here, he, uh, lepers had been healed. The sick were healed. Demons were routinely being cast out. Um, after this, in the beginning of Mark 3, there was a man with a withered hand who Jesus touched, and it was restored to full use, and uh, more with diseases came to find him. Mark 3.9 says that uh, they, had, they were at the point where they had to have getaway boats. So they had to have boats stationed at bodies of water so that when the crowds got too, too much, that Jesus and his disciples could hop in these boats and launch off into the middle of the lake and just get some time. I mean, imagine a crowd like that. Um, The scene was chaotic constantly. Mark presents this really well. Jesus called all of his 12 disciples by this time. So if you ever thought, you know, I'd like to see a a list of all 12 disciples in one place. It's right there in chapter 3. And then in Mark 3.21, we hear Jesus' family comes out, and they're concerned about him. Uh, They're concerned about, they're trying to take custody of him. They, You know, come home. We want to, we want to, you need a hot meal, you know. They, they want to take care of Jesus. They're worried he's lost his mind uh, because these crowds are just so wild uh, and chaotic. Mary would not have done that. She knew who he was. But remember, Jesus' own family did not believe in him until after the resurrection, all of his brothers and extended family. So if we pick up in Mark 3.22, now the scribes enter back in. So we haven't had the scribes in for a couple paragraphs, not since really last week. And so these scribes pop back into the story and uh, they respond, not necessarily to one miracle. Last week they were responding to the one guy being lowered through the roof. This is sort of a, they've gone to Jerusalem, they've thought about it, and they've come back with a pronouncement to make. So that's what's happening here um, in Mark 3:22. Read with me. It says, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, probably to the crowds, He is possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons, He cast out the demons. All right, we'll pause there. So as we seek to understand this unpardonable sin, we study it in context. I've got three important things that I think can help you. First, we see a fixed attitude. That's number one. You're going to see a fixed attitude. Now, remember, the scribes were often accompanying Pharisees, and uh, these were legal-minded Jews tasked with aiding and teaching and preservation of the law. They were gifted writers and copyists. They were good teachers as well. And verse 22 says that the scribes came down from Jerusalem. Now, you know they were going north, but anytime you leave Jerusalem, you're coming down in the Bible, just so you know that, all right? Because it was on a mountain. So think of Jerusalem like corporate headquarters, okay? This is like, think of David Wallace in New York, and, uh, and that's what corporate headquarters looks like. And you have the Jewish leadership is basically working there out of Jerusalem. Everything flowed from the capital. All the big wigs lived there, the best and the brightest in the Jewish world were employed there, and that's why they would often characterize uh, everyone else, especially up in Galilee and Nazareth, as backwoods hillbillies. They would say things like, oh, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And they looked down on everybody else that wasn't from the big city. We still do that today, don't we? They looked down on the villages in the Sea of Galilee where the disciples were from. And these scribes come in hot with a calculated pronouncement. So, all the big boys got together in Jerusalem and they've come out to tell the small town bumpkins something. Here it is, they've got it. There's no, and they come in, there's no we think, there's no we might be wrong, so let's just ask about it first. No, they have come from Jerusalem with a fixed assessment to give the official position on Jesus' ministry. And here it is Jesus is possessed by Beelzebub and all this miraculous stuff. Your witnessing is done in the power of demons. That's the official position from Jerusalem. Case cracked, mystery solved. Let's all go home and eat some matzo ball soup. That's it. Now, like many of you are hearing that word Beelzebul, you might be hearing that word and think, what is that? You know, Gizintite. What does that word mean? Let me give you a quick explanation of why these learned scribes chose that word. Obviously, their intent was to say Jesus is working for or with Satan. We get that. But why not just say that? So here's a little survey of some names in the Bible. Satan is an Old Testament word. It sounds like Satan in Hebrew. It literally means the adversary or against. So Satan is a transliteration, which means it's one of those words they didn't touch when they brought it over into Greek. It sounds the same way in Hebrew as it sounds in Greek. They left it the same like amen, hallelujah. They're all the same. So What about devil? That's another word we use. Well, devil comes from the Greek diabolos. Now, you might be like, okay, that sounds like something, right? Diablo, uh, diabolical, yes. So it means slanderer. Those are the two main titles that probably people use most, Satan and devil. Those are the two most common ones. Now, all throughout the Bible, you have the great dragon. You have the serpent of old. You have passing references to the enemy, the thief, the prince of the power of the air. You could have picked anything. But the scribes chose Beelzebul. It's kind of weird. Why? Well, if you know your Old Testament, you know that the primary false god that plagued the Israelites was a Canaanite deity by the name of what? Baal. Baal. Baal was a false god. And uh, the bane of Israel's existence, the false god of fertility and of the storm. And just like the Israelites would make combos of their names. So you never heard anyone say Jehovah Jireh? Or, you know, you can make up there's a bunch of combos you can use, Jehovah Rapha, you know, El this, Adonai that. We've got all sorts of different names for God. Baal worshippers did the same thing. They would attach little addendums to the name of Baal. Now the Baal worshippers had developed a name for their God that was translated to Lord of the house. And it sounded like Beelzebub, but it's not, it wasn't. The Jews who worshiped God, they, were, they, they, wanted to, they wanted to twist it a little bit. They wanted to twist the knife a little bit. So what they did was they kind of made a nickname for him, and they changed it from Lord of the house to Lord of the flies. In 2 Kings 1, by the way, you can see that word. Now, it won't say Lord of the flies. It'll say Above. It'll say it there for you. But if you want to see it in the text, 2 Kings 1. The implication was we're making fun of you. We're changing it from Lord of the house to Lord of the flies. And even in those days, I'm sorry, it was even kind of meant Lord of the dung pile. It was an additional, that's where the flies were there. So it was a, an additional punch to them that the Jews did at that time. So all this is now in, our, in our, the back of our minds as we go to this text. So the scribes, knowing their Old Testament, used this very obscure reference to make the most obscene attack against Jesus possible. Not only do they connect Jesus to demons, which is bad enough, they connect him to Israel's greatest false god opponent, Baal, as well as a nickname that's just nasty in itself. So that's what they were saying. It was a calculated, well-planned theological pronouncement. It was not off-the-cuff name-calling. Here's the problem that the scribes had to deal with. They could not say... Miracles are not taking place. I mean they, they couldn't say that, right? They couldn't hold up a sheet and say, Don't believe your lying eyes. You don't see anything here. And they couldn't do that. Clearly, things were happening. It wasn't cheap street magic. They could not just explain it away and say, Ah, well, you know, when Jesus walked on the water, really the you know, the lake froze and he was just kind of, you know, doing this thing and you know, black people try to do it. they couldn't do that. You can't you can only do that thousands of years later when you're a slick, you know, liberal. You can't do that in the moment when everyone's watching it happen in front of your face, okay? Leprosy had no cure. So we're, you're just banished. If you get leprosy, your skin rots and your arms and fingers and, and feet fall off, and you're banished to a leper colony. And so Jesus comes in, touches somebody, boom, hallelujah, we're walking, we're playing ping pong this afternoon. And you can't just go up to someone and say, "Yeah, what you saw was not what you think you saw. No, it's exactly what I, what I think I saw. They couldn't explain away the man who had the withered hand. So if you've ever seen, some people are born, you know, maybe their hand is is shriveled, and and so that's what this person probably had. Jesus walks up, boom, bah. I mean, it's just immediate, shocking, immediate. That's what a miracle is. We saw the paralytic last week, someone who went their whole life not being able to walk. Legs are probably thin and atrophied, and Jesus touches him. And he skips away. This is not like churches who say miracles are breaking out all over the room. Like, where? You know, every day, millions of miracles happening everywhere. We're believing for a miracle. Where? What shocking thing is taking place? It's not the Benny Hinn rally where everyone gets slapped in the face, but I've never seen a shriveled hand grow, right? Never seen a paralyzed leg take off and he's running, sprinting. So I was like, ah, well, we'll check up with him in two weeks and see how he's doing. No, when Jesus healed somebody, it was boom, shock, amazement, awe. Everybody cannot believe what they've seen. This was real. When Jesus did a miracle, nobody went home and wondered if there was a miracle that took place that day. It wasn't the downgrading of the definition of miracle that we have somehow accepted today that miracles oh every day is a miracle no it's not every day is not what that was every day is not people just absolutely having incredible life changes that happen like that so stop doing that y'all stop it these were self-evident true miracles they had to affirm the supernatural when they looked at this they had to There was no other way to describe it. So they had two options, really. Is this is good supernatural? This is bad supernatural. That's where they had to go with it. God and Satan. And guess what? They made their choice. They chose demonic power. Their attitude was fixed. Their presupposition was fixed. Jesus was an agent of Satan in their mind. That's number one. They brought a fixed attitude to the story. Let's continue. Number two, we see a foolish accusation. A foolish accusation. What you're about to see is how Jesus, the master teacher, reveals the foolishness of this argument. And it doesn't take long. Mark 3, 23. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself... That house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. All right, so Jesus says to the scribes, wait a minute here. So you're saying, I'm from Satan, but you're also saying I'm casting out demons and freeing people. Huh. So just so we're all clear, Satan is casting out himself. That's that's Jesus' point. Satan's doing the Lord's work. Is that what you're telling me? He's out here helping our cause. I would love to have been there to see that. You know, you ever been in a debate with somebody, in an argument, and you just thought you just thought you laid down the best logic since Socrates. I mean, you were just ready to steamroll this person, and then about three seconds later you realize. That was maybe the worst point I've ever made in my life. And they just hand it to you, you know. This is what happened in this moment. Uh, they, they, they had come all prepared. They'd come with their, you know, their big boy britches on from, from Jerusalem, and they were ready to just, case closed, let's go away. And Jesus just, wow, that was the dumbest argument anyone could have ever made. And they, and they made it. Jesus shows the scribes the foolishness of their argument. You know, we may have a lot to say about Satan, we might say he's a liar, a thief, an enemy, a slanderer. But as Jesus reminds us here, one thing we never say is that Satan's a dummy. No, I've never heard anybody really mean Satan's an actual idiot, right? We don't say that. You'll never hear the Bible describe Satan like that. He's not some bumbling cartoon villain sidekick, "Okay, boss." You know, like that's not that's not what Satan is. That's not accurate. And Jesus knows better than that. He knows. Satan isn't out there working against himself. He's not out there making his life harder, casting out his own demons and freeing people so that they can turn to Jesus. That's not what Satan does. So someone needs to go shout this, probably at Congress, but a house divided against itself cannot stand. And that's why you have a unified church as a goal, a unified family as a goal, a unified nation as a goal. It's so important because division is a sign of the end. Now remember, Jesus is speaking in parables. He says in verse 27, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder the goods unless he first binds the strong man. So what is that? That kind of sounds out there in left field. Jesus is telling the scribes what he's doing. Back before the great equalizer that we call firearms, combat was mostly hand-to-hand. And so, uh, especially if you're robbing somebody, if you're robbing somebody's home. If you're a thief, you're planning to rob somebody's house, you might want to do in these days, a little research on who lives at that house, right? I know there's some men here that you've lived your whole life waiting to say, you picked the wrong house, sucker, all right? You you wait every day for that moment to come, and you're just excited about that that ever happening. But you think about these days, you know, with no guns, it was kind of like, you know, what if you knocked on Goliath's door on accident? You, you know, you go in and, and you're, you're in uh, Philistia, and you're like, you know, I feel like robbing somebody today. And you go inside, and you're in Goliath's house. Like, what, that would be a terrible, terrible day for you. And so Jesus is saying, you know, you, you don't just go in and, and do something foolish like this without binding. Now, Jesus isn't endorsing robbery. This is a parable, right? So he's saying, I would not go in and do that unless I knew that the man of the house was tied up that he could not come, because he would make it worse for me than if I'd ever tried to rob this house. How many of y'all ever bench-pressed more than 300 pounds in the room? Right? Anybody? Throw it up. Throw up a hand. Here we go. These are the houses not to rob. These are the strong men to bind. Bind these strong men. All right, yeah. So that's what Jesus was saying. You might want to check You know who, where you're going first. And so his whole point was Satan is the strong man. That was the whole point of this analogy, that Jesus has come— He has bound the strong man, and he is plundering the goods of the house. Now, what does that mean? He's freeing the people that were oppressed by Satan. He's taken Satan's goods, which are the people who've been possessed and oppressed. Jesus is freeing them systematically. He's going through Israel and freeing people. He's plundering Satan's house because Satan has had the run of this place. Satan has just been going unchecked. And Jesus shows up, says, you picked the wrong house, sucker. There. So that's why the scribes' argument is so foolish. They were locked in to holding an argument that Satan is casting out Satan because they were committed to a presupposition that they already made. Well, we know Jesus is not the Messiah, so what, what could these miracles be? They started with that idea. Well, we know he's not from God. Okay, so now what, what do we know? Well, he must be Satan because it's obviously supernatural. But it was from God. Jesus was working in the power of the Holy Spirit. And you might say, well, how is it possible that these people were so calloused? I mean, you, we can't even imagine. I know some people say they've seen miracles and things, and you might have. I'm not trying to down talk you, but if some, if you really saw somebody right here today that, you know, they were an amputee or something and their leg came back. I mean, that changed some things in your life, right? You would not you would not go try to explain it away. How is it possible that somebody could see that and be so calloused? Well, we remember the book of Exodus. We see two things. Number one, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, but also number two, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And so that brings us to the main attraction. Number three. We've seen a fixed attitude, a foolish accusation. And lastly, Jesus gives, number three, a fearful assessment. A fearful assessment. All right, we're going to read Mark three twenty-eight through 30. Everything we just did was context building, by the way. In case you don't know what that was called, we built the context so that now when we go to the text that we're going to study and we're excited about studying today, we now go with a correct mindset into this text and we didn't just lift it out of the blue. All right. Verse 28, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. So, let's unpack this. First, a quick refresher on the word blasphemy. It's probably helpful. That comes from the Greek blasphemeo. One of those words. Sounds like what it is. It means to slander or to revile. Uh, But it did take on a theological connotation to profane something intended to be holy, to impugn the character of God, to misrepresent God. That's what blasphemy meant. So in the framework of the Old Testament, we remember blasphemy was a capital punishment. It was a death penalty sentence. We also remember it's in the top 10. It's in the great commandments. Um, Do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. That's a form of blasphemy. Now, if I could summarize what makes this passage, I think, strike us so differently, probably two things that when we read this, our red flags go off of, wow, this doesn't fit. First, the idea of any sin being unforgivable runs contrary to the way we think about the gospel, doesn't it? We say things like, no matter what you've done, no matter how far you strayed, Jesus can wash you whiter than snow. There is full pardon available at the cross. Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. Thank you. We sing all of these things. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe sin Left a crimson stain. He washed it. That was better. All right. Now I know what we got to sing next week. We say it. We sing it. We preach it. It's rehearsed in us that it's true. So this idea that it's true, except in one instance, I think makes us go, huh? It's kind of weird. Gives us pause. Makes us slow down and ask some questions. Secondly... Why this is weird to us. I think that we might be bothered by the fact that Jesus says, Yo, you could be forgiven of a blasphemy of the Father. You could blaspheme the Son. Those will be forgiven. But it's the specific blasphemy of the Holy Spirit that's what makes this confusing. Why? Why, why specifically the Holy Spirit? Now, I'll agree. Those are questions that should make you slow down and ask some questions. Now, there are those of that have tried to answer this question over the years, and I want to give you a survey. I could give you—there's a a bunch. I want to give you the top three that really you're going to run into of the way people try to answer this question. So the first one is that the unpardonable sin is some egregious sin that we actually commit. So you might hear someone say, murder is the unpardonable sin, or adultery is the unpardonable sin. You may have heard that before. Someone says that. The problem is— That has, as you can tell from our reading today, absolutely nothing to do with the context of what we've been reading, right? Can we all agree with that? That would be a left field, like you just pulled that from nowhere to make that, okay? So the scribes were not murderers or adulterers. Why did Jesus bring that up? David, King David, was both a murderer and an adulterer, and he was ultimately forgiven, wasn't he? So destroyed. That one's over. Second view. This one is more realistic, and you got to think about it. The second view says, it is dying without believing in Christ or refusing to repent unto death. So it's, it's general lack of belief. That's what it is. I think this is popular, this is, and it's, let me just say that's partially true. That is a partial true. Uh, I think it's probably popular, though, because it does not cause us to consider anything different about this passage than what we already believe. Uh, If we can just write the unpardonable sin off as dying without Christ, it kind of makes it simple because we already have that. We already believe that. This view sort of minimizes the text to simplify what we already agree on. The problem, though, uh, in my opinion with that view is it doesn't deal with the fact that no one dies in this passage. That's not in the context, as well as kind of ignoring the scribes calling Jesus a demon. Like that view does not deal with that at all, which seems to me the trigger of this whole thing. Uh, that's, I think, more detailed than, than what that second view would like to, to do. So for me, that second view is partially true, but it needs to add a little bit more clarity. And that's the brings to the third view, which is mine. That is, the unpardonable sin is when you look directly into the full, unvarnished, clear revelation of Christ. You understand exactly who and what he is, and you attribute that work to Satan. Um, and that to me is the most contextual reading which I tend to go with. Uh, it's when you look at the light of God. You know that it's the light. You agree that it's, uh, it's amazing things happening. You're not confused, and you take a deep breath, and you say, that's darkness. That's what it is. Uh, it's unbelief like the previous view. That's why I said it's partially, this, the, the last belief is partially true. It is unbelief. It is unrepentant belief. However, I think it's more than general unrepentant belief. You have to account for the fact that what caused Jesus to say this was a very specific instance. Jesus was around unbelief a lot. I mean, how often did Jesus run into unbelief? And he never said this. This isn't like he rolls this off the tongue every every sermon that he has, okay? And uh, another thing to think about, yes, Jesus was fully God incarnate. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him, but also, Jesus was also a spirit-filled man. You ever think about that? Both are true. Fully God, yes, with the full power and might of Yahweh God in him, and spirit-filled man at the same time. Both are true. And if you ask me, Well, pastor, how do you know when Jesus did a miracle, whether he was doing that miracle out of being the Son of God incarnate, deity power, versus when he was doing that miracle out of being a spirit-filled man who had never sinned and was perfectly tapped into the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit? I'll tell you, you gotta ask that one when you get there. That's one of those you gotta ask when you get there. I don't know. But I also think... Remember, the apostles did some miracles too, and they weren't God. The apostles healed and cast out demons, didn't they? They were not God in the flesh. So how did they do that? It must have been because they were spirit-filled and endowed with authority to do it. So the reason I say that is because on some level, we must agree that the ability to miraculously heal and cast out demons is rooted in the work of the Holy Spirit. Yes, even in Jesus' ministry. So, the scribes see a manifestation of the Holy Spirit on display, a demon being cast out of someone, and they say, this is done in the power of Satan. Well, that's blaspheming the Holy Spirit, isn't it? That's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says that's exactly what it is. So, I'll say it in a different way. Here's another definition, different way of saying it. The unpardonable sin is a conscious and calculated profession in the full face of the revelation of the Holy Spirit's work, that Jesus works by the power of evil rather than by the power of the Holy Spirit. Same thing, different way. We often think that people who don't believe in Jesus do so, uh, they, they don't so, I guess. They don't believe in Jesus because they don't know him. They just don't know him. It's an education issue, or that they've believed a distorted gospel, or they've not been exposed to the truth. And guess what? That is true some of the time, isn't it? Have you ever known someone that they just didn't believe in the gospel or the Bible, and then maybe you worked with them and showed them they were working on faulty assumptions, and then they came around? That happens, doesn't it? However, that's not true all the time. You see, The ideal chart, what God wants, if we put our our spiritual life on a uh, X and Y axis kind of chart here, okay? I'm going to have to do it backwards for you all, so pardon me if I get, get backwards. The ideal chart of a relationship with God goes, the more knowledge you have about Jesus, the more you believe in him, right? So that should look like this. The more knowledge you have, the more belief you have. So there's a relationship that works like that. That's a healthy Christian chart. The unpardonable sin chart, if you will, the, what we're talking about today is the opposite. The blasphemy of the Spirit chart says, the more I know about Jesus, the less I believe. More knowledge, less belief. The clearer the picture becomes to me, the less I love him, the more I hate him. When I fully understand who he is, I call it evil. That's what we're talking about. So if you've ever panicked because one time you said OMG, right, or you took the Lord's name in vain or you said the, the GD curse word or you even cursed at God in a moment of anger, I don't believe that's what this is. Though, for the record, stop it, okay? I don't believe that's what this is. Listen to the way Paul phrases this in 1 Timothy 1.13. He says, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul says, look, I was a blasphemer. I did it. I was a blasphemer before I was saved. I blasphemed, but I did so in ignorant Unbelief and God showed me grace by giving me faith and love for Christ. I think of what Jesus said when he was on the cross. He said, as he was being blasphemed by the crowd, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's why I can say confidently, you're not going to accidentally commit this sin. It's not committed in an outburst of the dark night of the soul or under the breath or in a moment of road rage in the car, or in a fleeting thought of the mind. No, it is a callous attribution of the work of Satan to the obvious and plain work of the Holy Spirit. It's calling dark light and light dark. Now, there's a practical implication that I want to close with on this today that I want to help you think through. I don't want anybody here to have... A realistic chance of this even possibly happening to you. How did the scribes get to this point? How did the scribes get to this place where they could blaspheme the Holy Spirit? I think they got here by refusing to address the callous that was building on their heart through the years. They never addressed the building callous. Notice this is not their first time with Jesus. This wasn't the first day they saw him. No, they, they had seen him by this point. They had heard him preach. They had seen him do miracles. They had seen him cast out demons. They knew who he was. They might have even been at the baptism and heard the Father's voice and seen the Spirit descend. They had been exposed to Jesus. They knew who he was. So with that, you know who you know what concerns me the most as a pastor? I am most concerned about the ones who regularly attend church, who know the truth, who have been exposed to the unvarnished gospel, who sit under biblical teaching and preaching and callously reject the light of the Spirit of God. It is a dangerous thing to perfect the art of non-response when the Spirit convicts. When the Spirit of God is clearly And obviously at work. Have you created a habitual non response pattern? Do you routinely see the glory of the gospel and think, ah, maybe later? Maybe later I'll get serious. Maybe one of these days I'll settle down. I'll surrender to the Lord later. I got some life to live though, right now. Got some things to do. Church, that may not be the textbook definition of the unpardonable sin, but it shares the same foundation. When you routinely say, no spirit, no spirit, no spirit, leave me alone. Don't be surprised if one day you get your wish. Listen, my desire is that if you are in Christ today, that you not live in fear of accidentally committing some sin that does not apply to you. The Spirit of God desires your assurance of salvation. God's goal for your life is not that you walk around on eggshells thinking that at any moment I could commit this one secret sin and just be done. It's over. Toss me in the junk pile. No, that's not at all true, and that's not what God's desire for your life is. He wants you to boldly approach the throne of his grace in confidence so that In that way, you can be comforted. But listen, if you are not in Christ today, I cannot guarantee you that you will never commit the unpardonable sin. But I do know this. If you will commit to following Jesus today, to repent of your sin, to turn away from your sin, to trust in him today, to say, you know what? Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is everything he said he was. You can absolutely remove all fear of unforgiveness. So choose you this day who you serve. Will you serve King Jesus or will you serve the God of maybe someday I'll get serious? Don't keep building that callous, it only gets thicker over time. May our hearts be soft with faith and the work of the Holy Spirit, not calloused with unbelief and unrepentance. May we be a church that welcomes and loves the work of the Holy Spirit through the hand of Jesus and celebrate him when he does work in our midst. Pray with me.